0: It is so great to have each and every one of you with us this morning. My name is Tim Bedall and I serve as lead pastor here at Village Bible Church. And I'm going to ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Genesis, to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And uh, we're going to be in Genesis 37 as we uh, uh, continue a series that we started last week looking at Joseph, the life and times of Joseph, and understanding and, and realizing that God's detours in our lives are good detours and that is an incredibly difficult principle, a very difficult lesson for us to learn as people because many times as we're going to learn in the life of Joseph, especially today, that God's detours at times are hard. God's detours at times take us in places we don't want to go. They involve hurts and pains, sorrows, trials and tribulations But I'm so glad that the book of James reminds us that we can consider those difficult detours as joy because God is working, as we are going to learn in the life of Joseph, God is growing this young man in this story. He's growing this young man who is going to change his life and and in, in turn change the entire world. But God is preparing this young man And he's preparing you and I through difficult times and difficult circumstances. And so last week we learned and we began. And if you missed last week, uh, I don't say this very often, but you missed a ton. You missed a ton because we set the whole backstory of Joseph's life, his home life, his early childhood life. We learned about his father, uh, Jacob. And the difficulty and the chaos that Jacob had in his family life that would become a part of the world view that Joseph uh, would have been able to look at his life through those lenses. Uh, To help you understand a little bit, and you can go to our website and hear the sermon from last week, read the transcript uh, to catch back up. But we were introduced to Joseph, and I want you to imagine, as we did last week, that Joseph was walking into your small group this last week. And Joseph begins to share and introduce himself. So he says, hi, I'm Joseph. I'm from the Middle East. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. My, my dad had a tumultuous relationship since birth with his twin brother. Him and his twin brother would fight over and over again. In fact, for most of my life, my uncle Esau was running and trying to uh, get and hunt us down as a family. My, my uncle hated my dad. And if that wasn't bad enough, my father, uh, trying to run away from his brother, uh, went to his great-uncle's house, Laban. And while he was there, while seeking solace and peace away from uh, running for his life, my great-uncle Laban, well, he was a problem as well. You see, he, uh, during the time that my dad worked for my uncle Laban, uh, my dad fell in love with one of uncle Laban's daughters, Rachel. That would be my mom. But that story, while it was love at first sight, didn't go as it should have because my great-uncle Laban deceived my dad. He deceived my dad into marrying the wrong woman. And so my dad married my aunt Leah, and that wasn't what my dad wanted. So my dad worked for seven years and, and did in some ways the unthinkable. He then married my mom. So now I've got my dad, I got my mom, and I got my aunt, and we're one happy family. Well, it doesn't end that way because as kids come along, and my brothers, older brothers are born A competition between my aunt and my mom uh, begins to take place because they're not producing enough kids. And so this unhealthy competition uh, begins. And and what happens is is my mom and my aunt both give my dad as gifts to other women. And as a result of that, they start birthing children. And the competition that was going on between me and my brothers and, and all of that was absolutely crazy. Now, I had one sister, Joseph would tell us. Her name was Dinah. And she would be a part of a terrible sexual assault. She would be raped. And in the process of being raped, she would then be told that she is going to marry her attacker. And the absolute horrific nature of that. And it could have, uh, you know, maybe gotten better at that point, but it doesn't. I got some brothers that they're never going to put down on a fight. And my brothers go, Dinah's older brothers, they, they want to seek revenge. And so they go to the city where the man was from, And they con them into being circumcised. And as a result, when they are at their worst, when they're trying to recover from that surgery, my older brothers go and decimate a city. They kill all the men in the town. And then they take the women and the children and all of the goods and they bring it back. And if you think that would be all that would take place, the love of my dad's life, Rachel, my mom, dies. She dies in giving birth to my younger brother, Benjamin. And here's the thing. My home life, as you can tell, has been difficult. It's been hard. But to make it even harder, my father showed a greater love for me than all my brothers. And because of that, my brothers absolutely hate me. But I believe God's got some great things in store. You see, my dad shows me this amazing love, but I've got a heavenly father who's given me these dreams, these dreams that are so amazing, these dreams that I know tell a greater story, a story that tells me and a story that I want to share with all others that God has a plan for me. But when I start sharing with those that I love, those who are closest to me, I don't receive affirmation, I receive hatred. That's who I am. And quite frankly, some of us, while maybe not dealing with all of that this morning, can find parts of that story that seem to resonate and hit close to home. Today, we're going to see how far envy and jealousy and hatred can go. What has been deemed one of the most heartbreaking chapters of all of Scripture The end of Genesis 37 uh, brings sorrow to any human heart because of the abuse and the mockery, the slander, and the devious plans of sinful men. We're going to look at Genesis 37 this morning. I'm going to ask God's blessing on our time, but turn, if you haven't already, to Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can follow along on page 31. Here's what we are told starting in verse 12. Now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here am I. So uh, Jacob said to Joseph, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of he- Hebron. And he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Joseph replied, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said to him, they've gone down, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into one of the pits here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this is what we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And Jacob identified it and said, this is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then uh, Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, now I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Father God, we open your word this morning because we believe your word is life. We believe your word is truth. And in a world of such lies, in a world of such debauchery, we recognize we need your truth this morning. And so with minds, attentive hearts that are open, Lord, I pray that you would instill upon us the the word of God Lord, allow me to back away so that your truth may be understood this morning. We know, Lord, that when we open your word and we teach it, that lives are changed. And I pray that that would take place. Lord, I pray for almost three dozen guys that are up at our men's retreat right now who probably are starting their morning session, again, opening up your word. Lord, uh, move in their hearts in an amazing way. Let them come back on fire for you so that they may be ready for a new week, a new opportunity to be your light in a world of darkness. Lord, we come before a passage that breaks our hearts. Teach us how we can trust and rely on you even when our world is coming apart at the edges. We love you, and we love you for Joseph's example and your faithfulness, and give you the glory for everything that's said and done today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Author and rabbi Harold Kushner was told by his doctors that his three-year-old son had a degenerative disease, a disease that he would not recover from. If he was lucky, he would live another 10 years of life, but that was probably stretching it. He went home and he grieved over the news that the son that he loved, the son that he had so many wonderful ideas and thoughts of what the future may hold, were probably for naught. He says in his book, why bad things happen to good people, I cried out to my God. Why, God? Why? What have we done? Where did we go wrong that you would allow such affliction, such pain, such sorrow in the life of your people? Why do you allow these bad things to happen to good people? Those words would become uh, a part of an epic book that millions of people have turned to in their times of questioning on why a good God would allow hard things to take place in our lives. If you've been a Christ follower for any amount of time, you've asked that question And I'm here to tell you that it's okay to ask those questions. A man after God's own heart, David, asked that question numerous times when bad things were happening, when things that he couldn't understand or explain were taking place in his life. I know at 14 years of age, as I shared last week at the death of my older brother, that I asked those questions. My parents are godly people. They were godly then, they're godly now. Why in the world, God, would you hurt people that love you so very much? It doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me at 14. It doesn't make sense at 40. God, why do you allow this? But then I turn to the pages of Genesis 37 and God says, my son, be still. Hold your tongue. And watch what I'm going to do, how I use the most horrific of human events for my good and my glory. This morning, the best way to outline this passage, which is a big one in front of us, is to do so by using four words this morning. Four words that will set the trajectory of what we are going to see. We're going to see that Joseph sent, we're going to see that Joseph is sold. We're going to see that because of what takes place, there are people who are sad, and we are going to learn at the end of this story that Joseph is safe. To do so, let's look at the first word this morning, sent. Joseph is sent. In verse 12, we are told uh, of what is transpiring. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Jacob, Israel, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing at this flock? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said, here I am. He says, go now and see if it's well with your brothers, with the flock, and bring me word. So he sends them off. Now I want you to recognize this morning that as we look at this passage, it's easy to go to the brothers right away and the treacherous act that they do to their brother and to sit there and camp there. But Moses, who's the author of this, It's telling us the real life events of Joseph and his family. And Moses says, I want you to recognize that there's an important part of the story. And don't be so quick to go by it as if it's meaningless. Joseph was sent. Joseph was sent by his father to do what many people in that time and day would have understood as an everyday task. Go check on your brother's. I can't tell you how many times as a parent I've said that to one of my children. Go check on your brothers. It's too quiet down there. Something's going on. So Joseph is sent. I want you to recognize this morning that there's no dilly dallying, there's no complaining, there's no gee whiz, dad. I'm finishing my clash of clans. Give me a second. He says, Dad, I'll go. There's no delayed obedience, which I've told you over and over again. Delayed obedience is instant disobedience. But there's none of that. Joseph says, I will go. I want you to recognize the first lesson that we learn from this part of the scriptures. We must be obedient. Joseph was under the authority of his father. And Joseph recognized, because my dad is in charge... I have the job of being obedient. So when my dad says go, my response is, okay, dad, I'll do that. What a lesson for us as people. Tomorrow or sometime this week, someone in authority is going to ask something of you. Maybe it'll be your boss. Maybe it'll be a parent. Maybe it'll be someone in leadership over you. And they're going to say, hey, I need you to do this thing. And I want you to judge your response unto Joseph's. Is your response, come on, I'm better than that. You could to someone else, I'm more important than that. Don't you know where I'm at on the organizational chart? I'm too big, I'm too important to do that menial task. Will you say, you know what, I just don't want to do it. I want to do my own thing, and you are infringing upon my rights and privileges. I don't want nothing to do with it. What Joseph reminds us of is when people who are in authority over us give us a command, our job should be, yes, I will do it. Now, I want you to recognize this morning that the task that Joseph had wasn't an easy one. And here's why. Joseph has already had some run-ins with his brothers. Remember, he's given a bad report. Most scholars believe that what we read in verse 2 of Genesis 37 is a reminder of a singular event that happened in the past that was very much like this. Go check on your brothers. He goes and checks on his brothers. He comes back and he tells his dad, hey, dad, they were up to no good. His brothers hated him. And uh, Joseph understands and realizes, I'm going to a group of guys that hate my guts. I'm going to do what my dad has called me to. I'm middle management right now. And my job is to go evaluate what's taking place, make sure they have all they need. And if I see something that's not going right, I'm supposed to bring it back and tell dad. You think the brothers who are older than him are going to enjoy having his company? No, but he does it. He shows that he goes the extra mile. He goes to where his dad says that the guys are pasturing, and he looks around. He can't find them. He's wandering around looking. He doesn't stop looking for them. He keeps going and, and checking here and checking there, and he can't find them. He doesn't stop and say, you know what? I did my job, and I didn't find them. Recently, I sent my 13-year-old son to look in a closet. We're talking a five-by-five area. I told him exactly where in the five-by-five area it was. He came back. He said, Dad, I didn't see it. I said, did you even try? He said, I looked. I said, but did you really look? "Eh." So often we go and we do the bare minimum. We do it so that we can have a good conscience to say, well, I tried. Joseph says, no. Okay, they're not here, so I'll look there. They're not here, so I'll look here. And then he finds out there's a guy that says, hey, I heard they said they're going down there. Joseph could have gone home, lied to his father, and said, I couldn't find him where you told me. But when he hears that they may be in another place with no guarantee that he's gonna find them, he goes and he does the hard work to find them. Joseph does the hard work with a hard task, and he does so with no complaint in his heart. What a great message for us as we start a new work week. Amen? Christians and Christ followers should be the best employees that our bosses have. They should be able to say, Man, that Mr. So and so, there's something about them. No matter what we ask of them, they're willing and able to do it. We see in Joseph's life that when we're sent, we must be obedient. Notice the second thing that we see. In being sent, We must recognize, and this pivots from Joseph to Jacob, that we must see the obstacles. Jacob is sending his son on what seemingly is an everyday task. But Jacob knows better. Jacob recognizes, unless he is so absent as a father, he no doubt would have recognized, I'm sending my son, who is hated by his brothers, on a task that could cause all kinds of no good. But I'm going to send him anyway. He recognizes and knows that his gift, the coat of many colors, had been a point of great anger for the brothers. He was not silent about it. He was not quiet about it. He knew, as has been articulated four times in the first 11 verses of uh, Genesis, twice it says, Moses tells us, that they hated him. Another time it says that they were jealous of him. Another time it says after he dreamt his dreams that they could say nothing good of him. Let me tell you something. As a parent... It would be really hard for me to recognize that two of my sons hate my other son in this way and not notice it. But for some reason, Jacob doesn't. For some reason, Jacob is so out of it that he doesn't recognize the absolute horror he's sending his son into. Now, here's what we say. Boys will be boys, right? I mean, it really can't be that bad. They'll never do anything like that. Listen, the job of parents is to see all contingencies before your children and to protect them of it. Did it never dawn on Jacob that if I send my son to do this job, that they may harm my son? Now, let's say he doesn't even imagine that they will abuse him and throw them down a pit as they will. Is it not enough to know that I send my, my, one of my youngest sons, 17 years old, and a group of older men, Reuben probably in his mid-30s at the time, that these older guys are going to bully and haze and emotionally hurt their brother, wasn't that enough to say, you know what, Joseph, I'll send somebody else? Or Joseph, I'll go with you? Or Joseph, I'll set some level of protection around you? uh, Jacob never thinks that what will take place would ever happen, but it does. What a reminder for us as parents that we have to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. That we need to be getting our heads out of the sand and, and look afar to understand the danger that our children may be in. That we may recognize it. That we wouldn't be asleep at the wheel. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked on the issue of lust. And we talked about how the world is throwing all kinds of images and all kinds of scenarios and all kinds of advertisements that we have to be awake to. At a parent night that we had in our student ministries, a couple of our elders led a time of parenting in the digital age. Why? Because we don't want you to be Jacobs. We don't want our people to be Jacobs asleep at the wheel and not recognize the terror that the world may have for our children. We have to see the obstacles. Finally, in this part of the passage, I want you to recognize we must see the once in a lifetime opportunities that are given. Jacob sending out Joseph. And I wonder if it was just like every other departure. Hey, son, you better take off. Better head out before dark. Hey, son, make sure you've got enough food. Grab your good shoes. I want you to take that with you. Do you have enough to eat? Do you have enough to drink? Do you have enough money for the journey? All those things that we say to our teenage kids as they head off to go this place and that place. Hey, son, be good. Get back soon. Bye-bye. And I wonder if Joseph looked back as he was leaving, seventeen years of age, looking back, and his dad's outside of the tent waving goodbye, and the little feature uh, figurine gets smaller and smaller as he walks farther and farther away. Bye, Dad. Bye, son. Little does Jacob know that that would be the last time he would see his son for twenty years. Twenty years. He would, during those 20 years, believe his son to be dead. I wonder if we had Jacob here this morning, if we could bring him up and ask, hey, how would you have done that moment differently? Had I known that was the last time I was going to see him, I would have said this. I would have said that. How many of us have seen the death of a loved one? And it's come unexpectedly. And the response is always, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have said that. If I only knew my time was short, then I would have done the following. Again, I can tell you, that was the lament of my family in the loss of my older brother. My mom still to this day grieves over an argument she had just two days before my brother was killed. Why was it so important, she'll say. Why couldn't I just hug him? Why couldn't I just tell him I love him? Why did I have to argue about his room? Why did I have to argue about these small things in life? Didn't I know I was on borrowed time? Didn't I know that Chris was going to be gone? Oh, how I would love, she would tell us, to go back. And if I had a moment to change that point in time so I could tell him anew I love him so I could show him my affection. What a great reminder for us this morning in a part of a passage that we want to get quick to the action-packed parts of it to recognize that God is speaking to us in the mundane things of life. Listen, spouses, that moment when you say, hey, I'm heading off to work should be times of great love. Honey, I love you. Honey, I want you to know what you mean to me. Not some glancing goodbye and I'm as guilty as anybody is of it because I think I'll have another moment. I'll have another time. A man is going to be around for the next 70 years and and I'm just going to go on as if I'm going to do this a thousand more times. But I want you to recognize at some point in your life to a person you love, it will be the last time you say goodbye. And Jacob casually sends his son and says, we'll see you soon but that soon this will be 20 years long and be filled with great grief we have opportunities to show love and affection and we at many times don't do it missed opportunities jacob or joseph was sent notice next the story tells us joseph was sold he was sold What does Joseph get for his obedience? He does exactly what his father says. You would think that he would get affirmation. You think he would get a that a boy. But what does he get? He gets hatred. He finds his brothers. After all the hard work, we don't know how long the journey was, but he finds his brothers. And in verse 18, it tells us they see him from afar. And it says they hated him. Now it says they saw him from afar. We don't know what afar is, but that phrase is used for a great distance. Now, what would distinguish their brother from all other people? It would be that blasted coat. Here comes that dreamer, they would say. Here comes the favorite son of our dad. He's coming in to check on us, he's coming to tattle on us. Here he comes. And notice while he is still afar, they begin to have murderous thoughts in their heart. And what we're going to learn is that murderous thoughts, thoughts of hatred, don't take long to go from the heart to the hands. Some of you right now have thoughts of great hatred towards someone else. And you say, listen, I've got it all under control. I won't actually ever do anything, but I hope they die. I wish ill upon them. I hope something terrible happens to them. They're good for nothing. And it's amazing how easy and quick those thoughts go through our head. But I want you to notice in this incredible object lesson how quickly those thoughts go from our hearts to our hands, Jacob's brother, or Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons, conspire to kill him. Notice there's a scheme. There's a scheme. The phrase they conspired to kill him speaks of total pre, pre, uh, premeditation. It speaks of deliberate discussions. They had a discussion of how we will do it. They start thinking through scenarios. Well, we could do this. Well, we can do that. And we're not given all of the discussion that the brothers had, but it paints the picture Moses does that this discussion is ongoing. It shows that the brothers are all involved. There isn't just one guy who is at fault. All 10 of the brothers are involved in the discussion. I wonder if there was, uh, in this discussion, a sinister laugh amongst the brothers. (laughs) Yeah, we could do that. Oh, that will feel so good. Joseph has no idea what he's walking into. About to be ambushed. Notice the scheme. The scheme tells us that they have an idea of what they're going to do. They have a motive We want to get rid of this dreamer, motive, crime, we're going to kill him, alibi, we're going to kill him and say that an animal got a hold of his body, devoured him, and that will get us our way out. Man, the perfect crime, the perfect murder, but then some things begin to unfold. I want you to understand from their conspiring, as we talked about last week, that the brothers believed that the dreams that Joseph had were true. Because if they thought he was just crazy, nobody kills a crazy person. But they said, let's see what what these dreams will come of it when he's dead. Not only were they murderous thoughts towards Joseph, they were rebellious thoughts against the providential plan of Almighty God. God, we know where these dreams came from. And we're going to get rid of him, and we're going to get rid of you. Because if you think, God, we're going to bow the knee to our younger brother, you've got another thing coming. So we're going to take care of this. We're going to thwart your plan, God. We're going to thwart your will. You want Joseph to be number one? We'll show you who number one is. Now notice, I mean, I'm going to flip the bullet points for you. So go ahead and put these extra bullet points in. We're going to see the self-preservation of Reuben. Go ahead and write that down. And we're going to see the sinfulness of man. Let's deal with, and I put it in the wrong section or the wrong order, the self-preservation of Reuben. Reuben speaks up. Reuben the oldest. And in verse 21, Reuben tells the group, hey, hey, wait a minute. Notice what he says, let's not take his life. I can imagine that they've got Joseph around and they're starting to to beat on him. They're starting to abuse him with his words. They've already from afar mocked him for his dreams. And Reuben says, okay, okay, hey, let's just stop for a minute. Time out. Let's not take his life. Let's not kill him. Let's do something else. Let's throw him into a pit. Verses 21 through 24 says... Now, I want to interject here for a moment. As we learned last week, Reuben is not a very nice guy. Reuben has done some bad things. Reuben was the one who led the the, uh, um, genocide of the city and all its men because of Dinah's rape. Reuben is the oldest son who tries to usurp his father's birthright by sleeping with one of his father's concubines. So, Reuben is a bad character. He's a bad seed. But it would seem this morning that Reuben has got a new lease on life. Let's not kill Joseph. Let's make sure that we get rid of him, but let's let's be kind to him. And, and there's a plan that Reuben has. Reuben has a plan that the text tells us, we'll put him into a pit, and when my brothers aren't watching, I'll take him and I'll return him to my father. Now why would he do that? Let's look at a couple things. Number one, could it be that Reuben is repentant over his original sins and now is showing a picture of godliness. Well, I don't want to paint anybody in a bad light because I don't want anybody to do that to myself. I struggle with that. And one of the reasons why I struggle with it is that his response is muted. And a repentance response is a response that says, listen, why would we do such a thing? I have sinned greatly against my father. I've gone against his wishes and killed an entire city. I've gone against his wishes and slept with one of what would should be deemed my, his wife. I've done terrible things and it's done me no good. So brothers, stop what we're doing. Let's cease and desist and let our brother alone. He doesn't say that. He formulates a plan, by the way, that doesn't go the way he wants it to. For I believe another reason. He sees an opportunity for a new lease on life with his father. If I bring that favored son home, then I'll be in good graces. I can use this as an opportunity uh, to be elevated back to the firstborn. I can uh, receive back. If I bring the favored son back, maybe I might get the birthright back that was given to Joseph in the appearance of the coat of many colors. So Reuben... In my, all my belief is doing what Reuben does, looking out after number one. And he's using an opportunity to get back on the right track, to get back to where he wants to be. It doesn't happen that way. Verses 29 and 30, he comes to the pit trying to rescue him, and he's gone. And I want you to notice his response, I believe, is a selfish one. What will happen to me? What am I gonna do? He doesn't give a a rip about what happened to Joseph. He cares only about himself. And what a great reminder for us as Christians that we are not number one, that our plans and our prerogatives aren't first. Reuben reminds us of the selfishness of an individual. Notice the sinfulness of men, it gets uglier. They throw them in a pit. Let's stop and say how evil this group of men must have been. It has been said in all of Scripture there is not more evil of a group of men than maybe the mob that yells to Pontius Pilate, crucify Jesus. How can a group of brothers, is there not one good apple amidst a basket of rotten to the core individuals, is there not one who will stand and say, this guy's innocent, we've got the problem, no, all ten of them in one accord are saying, let's get rid of them. Wicked to the core, what a vicious attack, their evil is compounded by a couple things, their evil is compounded first. Instead of killing him quickly, they choose to kill him in a more excruciating way. The text tells us, let's throw him in a pit. Moses tells us that the pit has no water in it. Why would Moses tell us that? Why is Moses so concerned that there's no water in the pit? Because if there's no water, there's no drink. And if there's no drink, there's drought. And where there's no drought, <coughs> excuse me, there's dehydration. And where there's dehydration, there is a merciless death before you. It would be far better for me to be killed by a lion in violence than to die that excruciating death. They would throw him down a pit. No no doubt this pit is not two, three feet down, right? Let's say at best it's a 10-foot drop. At worst, 20, 30 feet drop. What would happen to a body as it falls to the ground? Does it hit the side of the pit a couple times on the way down? Does it bang his head? Does it crack a rib? Does it break a leg? What did that thud sound like when Joseph hits the ground? What are the screams of anguish of a 17 year old boy who has been thrown down a great ravine? They're evil. Third, they would do this horrific act in what would seem absolutely callous. The text tells us, notice in the passage, that after they do this, they would sit down and eat. Their brother, no doubt, is yelling for his life. They're sitting around the hole, and and they know what they've done. We've just harmed our brother. Can I tell you, we harmed our younger brother numerous times as a Badal family. My older brother my younger brother, we once told our younger brother that he could swing so high um, that he could do a total flip around the bar and he would be okay, to which he tried. The chain did the yank that when you start getting high enough, it starts giving slack. He literally fell off the back of the swing over the bar onto asphalt and got a concussion. I can assure you in that moment, as sinful as we were, and we were sinful, that we didn't stop when he was on the ground and eat. Pass a hot dog, Chris. All right, yeah, isn't this great? Got some mustard for that? What's that noise? Hey, Joel, quiet down. I'm trying to eat here, don't you get it? Keep your mouth shut. How could grown men hear the cries of their brother and sit down and have a meal? Number four, we see the sinfulness in a group of men who go home and share with their father that their brother's dead. We're gonna see in a moment the sorrow that it brings Jacob. And notice, it says in the text, it says later in the text at the end that all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. All his sons I gotta believe what Moses is telling us that the same guys who did all this harm to Joseph, now after they've told, them that, uh, told their dad that their, their brother is dead, that now they're trying to comfort their father. Oh, dad, don't be so sad. Oh, dad, it's gonna be okay. All the while knowing they're lying through their teeth. Let me tell you something. If you ever hear from a pulpit that man is good, and that man needs just a little enlightenment so that they can be in a right standing with God. They are preaching a doctrine of the devil. It's from the pit and smells like smoke. The heart is deceitfully sick, the Bible says. Who can understand it? And what a reminder of our absolute total depravity. Now you say, listen, I would never do that. Pride cometh before the fall, right? Just give a little time. Allow that hatred to grow. Allow that hatred to take root. Allow that hatred to be cultivated. Allow your jealousy and your envy uh, to, to start reaping a harvest of unrighteousness. The Bible says that what will begin in the heart will come out in the mouth, and what happens in the mouth will begin to defile the rest of the body, and you will find out you give enough lee- leeway and enough... Um, Uh, room for sin to grow it will and it will destroy you the sinfulness of joseph's brothers notice the selfish selfishness of judah we get one more thing here in this in this scheme in verses 25 through 28 we are told that judah Speaks up, hey, maybe we're going to get someone who's going to say something nice. Maybe we're going to get someone before, hey, let's pull them out. Guys, I'm getting a queasy feeling about this. What we've done is wrong, and and there's some remorse. But no, Judah sees some traitors from afar, and he gets the idea. Why Why are we doing this to ourselves? I mean, absolute selfishness. Why are we causing ourselves such consternation? Listen. Listen. We don't need to deal with the guilt of killing our brother. We don't need that on us. So let's sell him. And it does two things. One, we'll know he's alive. And then anything that happens to him that's on him. Number two, we'll put some money in our pocket 20 shekels. So that's two for each of us. And maybe we can stop at McDonald's on the way back from Dolphin and, and enjoy a twi- twin cheeseburger or something. Let's do that. That sounds good. Because I don't want to carry a guilty conscience. And at least I'll be able to sleep at night because I know I've done the right thing. And so they sell their brother. They sell their brother. And I want you to imagine what that sale must have been like. Get out of your mind the flannel graph of Sunday school. Joseph is grabbed out of the pit. He's bound up. He's handed over. Imagine 17-year-old boy. His brothers say, okay, 20 shekels, that works. Okay, here you go, take him. His brother being chained to a cart or to an animal, and he's walking, and he's looking back and saying, guys, come on. I don't want to go. Come on. The joke's good. I get it. I learned my lesson. I'll never, ever say a bad thing about you guys again. Come on. I want to go home. I want to see my dad. And as he got farther and farther away, the cries of now this new slave who has been trafficked, trafficked by his brothers. And what an ancient story for a modern problem we have because that's happening all the time today. Young people being taken against their will and taken away from their families to do ungodly things. And he's taken away. The sinfulness of men. This leads us to being sad, sad. That is the most understated word in the entire chapter. We have seen how terrible things can happen to good people. Joseph deserves nothing of this but love and admiration of his brothers. He is going, let's remember, he's going to care for his brothers. He's going to make sure all is well with them. What does he get? He gets mockery, he gets abuse, he gets injury, He gets sold. What a treacherous and traitorous act. Sounds like what happened to Jesus, doesn't it? Came for our good, and we esteemed him not. What would come? We would see the screams of Joseph. I cannot tell you how important this is to know in the story. 17 years old. You say, Tim, nowhere in this chapter do we see that J, uh, Joseph is screaming. No, nope, you're right. Tim, well, you can't go farther than what the scriptures say. You're right. So like a good Berean, you're asking the right questions. So turn to Genesis 42, 21 real quick. Genesis 42, 21. We are given, per his own brothers, a part of the story that we did not know. In verse 21, the brothers said to one another, "In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us." I want you to know when they threw him into the into the pit, he was crying out, "Come on, guys! My leg it's broken!" Guys, come on, don't leave me here. Guys, I don't want to die. I want you to understand, I was typing these words last night and with tears, and I am not a crier. I'm going to turn my man card in. I was broken for this man. How can they do this? Being sold the cries of this 17-year-old kid. Guys, don't do this to me. Guys, I want to go home. Guys, come on. Come on, the joke's over. This is a nightmare. The screams of Joseph. How many of us have found ourselves at the hand of mistreatment and we have cried out with all our heart screams of pain, screams of sorrow, screams of fear and no one listens and no one hears us. Notice the sorrow of Jacob They come home and I imagine the scene. They come home and the ten brothers and 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 Jacob's all excited. Hey guys, welcome back. Hey, hey, where's your brother? Where's he at? Did he find you guys? Yeah, Dad. We got to tell you something. Well, where is he? Where is he? The flock's okay. Where's Joseph? Dad, we need you to sit down. Why? What happened? Dad, we found this coat as we were coming back from Dothan. It's all bloodied, Dad. Is this Joseph's coat? What a stupid question, by the way. Can I interject that? Can you identify this coat as if they didn't know it? Remember, from afar, they knew it was Joseph because of the coat. And now they're asking, I'm telling you, these guys are sinful to the core. Hey, can you identify this jacket? We haven't seen it very much. We know you have. Oh, my goodness and their father begins to shudder. He falls to the ground, and he begins to weep. I want you to understand that these are not shedding a couple tears. One of the most vivid memories in my entire life is at 14 years of age on September 17th around 10 a.m. I came home after my father came to pick me up telling me of my brother's death. I came home and I heard the weeping sobs and screams of a mom who wailed for her son. And I want you to know that that brings, it makes my skin crawl even thinking about it at this moment. I remember one of the first memories of that day was my mother at the feet of three DeKalb County Sheriff's Department agents pleading with them, bring me my son. You're lying, I know he's in trouble, I know he's in jail, just take me to my son. And she wept, and she sobbed, and she groaned, and she muttered, and that's what Jacob's feeling. And if you've lost a loved one, you know the darkness of that sorrow. And Jacob is on the ground and he's weeping and his stupid, moronic, deceitful brother's sons, Joseph's brothers stand there and they do nothing. What a horrific story. So what do we do? The final word is a word of hope, safe. Joseph's in Egypt. The text tells us at the end of the chapter, Joseph is in Potiphar's house. His dad thinks he's dead. Joseph must have thought, they're gonna come and get me. They'll come to their senses and they'll start to investigate. I wonder if Joseph's thinking someone, uh, maybe it'll be Dan, maybe it'll be Naphtani, maybe it'll be um, Reuben, someone will come to their senses, tell my dad what they've done, and they'll come and they'll find me in Egypt and we'll be reunited. 20 years, no one comes. 20 years, he's as good as dead, but he's safe. Safe amidst trials and tribulations. None of the family knew where Joseph was, but I want you to understand God did. And maybe today you're suffering mistreatment and struggle, and you're wondering, does anybody know? You're screaming cries of sorrow, and you're wondering, does anybody listen? And maybe nobody is in a human standpoint, but God is. And I want you to know a couple things why you are safe right now in your hardship. Why you are safe when bad things happen to good people is because number one of God's positioning. God's positioning. We see the sovereignty of God in all of this. I want you to notice just a couple pieces of what we would think are happenstance or coincidence to have Joseph exactly where he needs to be. First, the man who happens to hear the brothers have gone to Hebron. Joseph happens to run into somebody who knows where his brothers are at. Just happens to. He happens to hear. I heard that they were going this place. Notice the second thing that we see. Reuben's call not to kill him, but to put him in a pit. It doesn't work out for Reuben, but it works out for God, right? How about at just the right moment? Traitors showing up. Not just any traitors, but traitors who are willing to take their brother. What if they hadn't done that? he would have been left for dead. But what a convenient out. What a convenient mechanism for them, a group of traders who are willing to take Joseph. What about Potiphar? And we'll learn about this next week as he looks at him on the slave block and says, I'll take that boy. I'll take him because God, unbeknownst to me, wants him in my house. I want you to recognize God is moving all things together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God is moving and directing Joseph. And I want you to recognize this morning that nothing that happens to you or I does not go by the desk of God for his express written consent. So the trial you're struggling with, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the mistreatment at work, God has punched with his stamp, listen, it's approved. The devil can't touch you, people can't hurt you, without God saying, I'm gonna allow it to happen. And I know where you're at, and I've got you in my hand, and you're safe. God's positioning. God is sovereign. No man can thwart the will of God. Not even the devil can thwart the will of God. Take solace in that. Have hope in that. Notice the promises, and I'll close. The promises of even greater value of this text is a reminder of the things that Joseph knew by experience, but we know through the black and white writings of Scripture. No doubt, wondering, does anybody care? Will my dad ever come and find me? Will this trial ever end? Questions that no doubt some of us have asked. God promises some things. Number one, God cares for you. God cares for you. 1 Peter 5 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God, I'm scared. God, I'm hurt. God, I've been betrayed. God, I'm broken. God, I'm so tired. God wants us to throw those things to him, to cast them on him because he cares for us. Who grieved for Joseph? God did. God did. God will care for you when you're hurting. God will comfort you. Psalm 23 could have been written for Joseph, and though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God comes through big time in ways we would never know. I don't know when Joseph got it, but at some point, listen, at some point in Joseph's life, on that journey from uh, Dothan to Egypt, he figured out it's gonna be okay. It hurts, it stinks, but God's with me and he's going to comfort me. I've seen this comfort in the life of my parents. I've seen this comfort as I visited hospital rooms at the death of, of newborn children. I've seen it with the death of, of an aged individual and the peace that comes over a spouse as they watch the ravages of cancer take the one they love. I have watched the peace of God transcend all understanding that guards the hearts and minds of Christ, in Christ Jesus. He'll comfort you finally he's committed to saving you this is not the end of the story this is not the end of the book there's more to come and it's a reminder of what paul tells the philippians that he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion the pit is not the end for you the pit is not the end god has another chapter for you And he's writing the history. And as long as there's air in your lungs and there's function in your brains, God has a new day for you. And he will be with you every step of the way. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And he has you in the palm of his father's hands safe so that you may be one day taken from this life into the arms of almighty God. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. But I know that it is a good and right thing to trust God in those times. And I pray that as I've learned this week, that you'll trust him in the hard times as well. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we give you this this passage and we say thank you for it. Oh, what it teaches us, how it changes us. Lord, I pray that we would take the troubles and tribulations of our life and we'll give them over to you. As difficult as they may be, I pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, and the mistreatment that we may feel, the persecution that may come, the trials that may befall us this week, that we will know, as Joseph did, that we are safe in your arms, and though we ask the questions why, we will be settled to know you are good, and your love for us endures forever. Send us forth with that peace today, Lord. Send us forth amidst trials that we might consider them joy because of what they can mean for us. Now send us out, Lord, we pray in peace. Let us fellowship with one another, we ask. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. Thank you.